to Beneath the Willow Tree, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of truth through wonder with me, Sophie Burkhardt. Welcome back to our authentically authentic and genuinely genuine podcast with dogs growling and barking and sneezing in the background <laughs> <laughs> and all sorts of fun noises. Um, a little bit of laundry going on. Um the sounds of pregnancy at, at eight months <laughs> yeah we've got it all here yeah, get ready and, to experience reality mm-hmm, very audio intensive um podcast and we were talking about round two of heretics chapters six through ten we plan to be much quicker this time around we have a better plan and so we'll just jump into it without further ado so chapter six which <sighs> i don't know how to pronounce the word so I'm going to let you try to pronounce it again. <laughs> Why is it so hard to say? It's, okay, so we're talking about people who practice the aesthetic life. Aesthetic. It's Christmas and something. The somethings. It's, it's such a tongue twister. It's not like aesthetics because it would be spelled different. Aesthetics. Aesthetics. Yeah, we don't know how to pronounce it, but it'll make sense as we go. Yes. So really, you don't need another chapter title. The point of it is that this chapter, the focus is on ritual. Mm -hmm. And in general, I think ritual is something that we're not overly familiar with in the modern era, unless you go to a very traditional church. I mean, Catholics, Hmm. I think, would be much more comfortable with ritual or other belief systems i think still have more ritual i suppose ritual in a sort of sacred sense in a sacred though, sense though if you think about it i think without calling it ritual our culture is very ritualistic about some things we were just talking about black yeah. friday for instance <laughs> favorite day of the year it's a very bad ritual. it's we are like a consumerist we have a consumerist yeah. ritualism yeah. which is unfortunate totally. although i guess i maybe the most obvious ritualism for where we are is football games Absolutely. Um, in the southeast. S- considered a sacred ritual in the southeast. Mm-hmm, with your tailgating and you wear a certain kind of clothes, which Definitely. I never wore the proper clothes. Um, and all of these different things. So we do have some ritual that is actually more annoying to me, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's not the kind of ritual that we are that we are trying to <laughs> encourage. And right, right. So Chesterton is talking about, I mean, I think in general he's talking about a very, he's talking about a sacred ritual mm-hmm. um, and sort of, I think one of, maybe one of the launching points of ritual is that it is something that is very primal. And Mm. he sort of says that people sometimes seem to think that philosophy comes first and ritual comes second and you can just sort of tack on ritual. But really, he says ritual comes before even thought. Yeah, right. And I suppose in that sense, you know, ritual, we talk about sacred ritual my immediate thought is something very austere and something very formal and formulated. But according to Chesterton, as you say, it's more animalistic almost. It is mm-hmm. more more primal. It is more kind of every man's activity, um, not just something for those in robes with smells and bells about them. <laughs> right. It's a very democratic um, yes. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There you go. He, and he sort of describes it as uh, a feeling or a ritual sort of born out of a, you have a feeling touching the very nature of things mm-hmm. and it makes men feel that there are certain proper things to do as well as proper things to say mm. um and so i don't know that's something so powerful and it feels so primal of like you've touched upon the very nature of being of something yeah. and you just know that you have to act a certain way that there there's right. a right way to right. act this out and, and live this i really liked that quote about touching the nature of things because i almost pictured is as if you're touching a live wire and you get this kind of electric mm-hmm. zap mm-hmm. that just excites, you know, like you said, it kind of sends you into motion. And Chesterton almost sees ritual as sort of touching this eternal reality, this eternal nature. And it is that sort of enlivening, um, animating power. It is. It's almost as if, so if you view heaven and earth, instead of thinking it as like, earth below heaven above destination mm-hmm, but you see mm-hmm. heaven and earth as two overlapping Co-existing. dimensions yeah yeah then it's, it's those moments where heaven breaks through into earth or where earth touches heaven you know right. that sort of thing that Kronos touching kairos <laughs> exactly yes the different <laughs> kinds of time yes and it's even like what we were, oh we were watching one of the hutchmoot videos and they were talking about jacob's ladder and how you have um, the angels coming down the ladder, so like sort of this heaven coming to earth 
sort of thing. But so Jacob has this moment of the very like coming to the essence of being or of existence or, mm-hmm. you know, encountering heaven. And there's a certain ritual that comes with that because he marks that place as separate right. and sacred and, and, you know, names it. And so you're always seeing people that when they encounter heaven, the heaven dimension or whatever you want to call it, there's this immediate action before you see any sort of the- theology spawning True. from it. Like Jacob didn't write a theology manual. He How just... to behave when heaven <laughs> opens up and <laughs> drops a ladder. Exactly. He marked the spot. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you see that throughout with the burning bush, mm-hmm. uh, with Isaiah before, you know, seeing the throne of God. There is this natural response of usually falling on one's face or even mm-hmm. when an angel of the Lord, you know, when someone encounters an angel, there's a falling on the face. And then there's usually the angel or God himself saying, get up, take off your <laughs> shoes. So right. he kind of, he speaks into that ritual as well, but there's a natural response that comes with that. And as you say, marking the spot, building a monument and, and God condones that. He tells us real time, time again, build that monument, mm-hmm. you know, pile those stones high because this commemorates Right. something meaningful and eternal helps you remember like communion exactly yeah <laughs> any sort of sacrament. um yeah and and it's so fun chesterton always i feel like just with his wit he takes things and he's like all the useless and irrational things are what is truly human like mm-hmm. ritual looks so useless so irrational probably a waste of time a waste of resources so far from utilitarian so far from it but he's like that's what is truly human yeah more than all of the you know high cloud philosophizing and and more than all the utilitarian things it is the things that don't make sense which i so appreciate because he boils it down to christmas and i'm a big christmas person (laughs) and i really believe in going out and getting that tree and decorating that and you know Mm -hmm. we've talked about those who feel like poo poo on christmas it's not sacred enough it's too pagan or all of these (laughs) wasted you know lights and electricity and and so i appreciate the affirmation that uh chesterton brings to how important Mm -hmm. it is that we ritualize something as sacred as the birth of christ with with a little bit of wildness with a little bit of sparkle (laughs) right right and and what's so fun is he talks about festive traditions that are uh old or the past ones versus you know traditions that we have today and how you have to appreciate the current ones if you're ever going to appreciate the ones in the past right because you have to come to this understanding that all festivities are he uses the term vulgar right and vulgar of course is simply just means like kind of what you said democratic it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. dirty or scandalous as we tend (laughs) to use it today but simply every man's yeah yeah yeah. it's the and there's you know eating and drinking and laughter there's probably belching you know like Uh to some degree vulgar (laughs) maybe the way we think (laughs) but like there's it's just people having a good time together and and celebrating and loud and raucous and all that sort of thing and i really appreciate you know, he, he throws out some of these poets of his day who are sort of bemoaning the lost days of, of the medieval epoch and, and the bounty and the feast and the, um, the rituals of the time. And he sort of says, well, you never have enjoyed those if you can't enjoy, you know, how does he put it? It's so wonderful singing when the Christmas pudding comes out and pulling your cracker and wearing your silly paper crown. If you can't get into that, mm-hmm. you're not, you would never have enjoyed the past because humans were still human and we still celebrated in the same vulgar ways. Right, right. It's always been that way. Mm-hmm. Which I just, I always, I always love his return to the, the democratic approach. Right, um, right. To all of these different things. To all of these erudite heresies. There's kind of a simple answer if you just kind of tilt your nose down out of the air and look around you. <laughs> exactly, yes. And, and I think it's interesting. He sort of says that any sort of gross in the same terms that really that you're using the word vulgar, gross and vigorous life, it really feeds into and out of having creeds and myth. Yes. Like a world or a culture, a society that is devoid of creeds, devoid of myth is going to be dead. It's not going to be vigorous. And a world that is dead and not vigorous is not going to have creeds and mythology. It kind of goes back and forth. Yeah, there's nothing to celebrate. Again, if you have nothing to believe in and nothing to ritualize there is literally nothing to celebrate and he talks about Mm -hmm. humanism and how um how Comte tried to create this positivism around humanism and 
You know, we have that today. We're talking about Alain de Botton and the humanist church and wanting to sing songs and gather and read humanist texts. And Chesterton, I think, is so right when he says humanism has never inspired <laughs> enough of, to create ritual around it. Mm -hmm. And every, I think, every human has a natural urge to ritualize, a natural urge to celebrate and to commemorate. Right. And yet, if you don't have those creeds, if you don't have that that myth, and of course when we talk about myth, we talk about it in the sense of, of the, the true theme of existence, the right. true story, Correction. out of which every other myth has has spawned. But um, yeah, if you don't have that, there's nothing really to inspire. Maybe Maybe you substitute something like college football <laughs> or Black Friday, but it doesn't satisfy in the same way as obviously having a real, a genuine creed. Right, because well, and you need something that supersedes yourself and transcends yeah. yourself, which I think is one of the just big folly pitfalls of if you look at France leading up into the revolution, mm. and like right in the revolution, they had a temple and they literally held a worship service to reason. Mm. Um, and, and they described it during the Enlightenment, of course. Um, and they but, thought that that would last, but <laughs> how long did that last? <laughs> I, I think they, I don't, they might have only ever had one worship service to reason. Yeah. I can't remember. It's been a few years since I read the exact text on it, but... Um, not much of a legacy. Not much of a legacy. And if you're worshiping reason, you're really just worshiping yourself. Absolutely. And that's not, besides the fact that that's prideful and arrogant, this is not fulfilling it's because not. we need something that transcends us. Right. We know, we know when it's a phony show. <laughs> Right, deep exactly. Down. And you can't just like, you can't ritualize your yourself. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't be both worshiper and worshipped, ultimately. there's It doesn't work. Yeah. You need something something bigger. Um, and I love how he ties, so he ties in ritual to this notion of people acting out poetry. I think mm, yes. you had a longer quote pulled from that, didn't you? If I can find it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, keep keep talking about it. Oh, here we go. So, yeah, he's talking about how um, Christianity, you know, many, I think many... So he talks about people in his day basically attacking Christianity on the idea that they've sort of... Christians have sucked human joy out of life. Mm -hmm. That they try to kind of make it this, um, this ascetic experience. And he says that's not entirely unfounded, that there are many Christians of his day and ours who do, who do, are, are guilty of that. Um, but at least he says Christianity still has Christmas to boast of. And he talks about Christmas as being when the many acted poetry instead of the few writing it. And yeah, I thought that was pretty profound as well. Because again, it comes back to this vulgar in the sense of democratic celebration where we are living out that festal revelry mm -hmm. we're not just reading about it as something of the past or you know something of the greek myths but we're actually practicing it yes and the whole that whole acting out the poetry like that's what i think is so beautiful about ritual i mean if you think of like sacrament of baptism especially if you're doing baptism by emerge immersion i think that mm. that's so poetic because you see this person going down and coming back up yes. and it's very much you're acting out the poetry of jesus death Absolutely. and resurrection and there's so much there's something so rich and meaningful about that which ironically i think is funny because i feel like you know denominations that practice baptism by immersion like more baptists and who else does it? I don't know, non-denominational, etc. But like, are they're more against ritual? And right. yet I feel like they really hit the nail on the head when it comes to baptism of really seeing this rich ritualism and, and right. symbol there. But communion is the same way. Right. You're, you're acting out the poetry. Um, and it's just it's so much, so much richer. Absolutely. Um, and I just think it's so fantastic that our God is not a utilitarian God, that he is a poetic right. God right. who calls us to act out poetry i mean mm -hmm. the sacraments are his idea and he ordained <laughs> them and he's commanded us to do them so that we don't lose that richness so that we don't lose right. the poetry that he created us to savor and to enjoy mm -hmm. and that's what i love too about you know as you go deeper into scripture and there's this rich beautiful poetic symbolism that ties all of these themes together throughout and you know the things that that jesus does from 
you know, washing the disciples' feet to his self being anointed. And there's just, it is, he lived out poetry. Yes. And, but in the most authentic way. And then sort of welcomes us into this world of sacrament and, and lived out poetry where, you know, it is what we were made for. And that's why it's so satisfying. Exactly. <laughs> and it's such a, like, it's so cool how um, richly physical everything is. Yes, totally. You know, it's not just left to the philosophy. And I love philosophy, mm-hmm. but it's not just heads in the clouds, exactly. spiritualism. Exactly. It's so, it's the combination is the coming together of spiritual and physical. Which I know yeah. you love because you, so along with N.T. Wright, are, uh, <laughs> are down on old Plato and his, yes. <laughs> his separation of the two. But it's mm-hmm. true. In Christ... The physical and the spiritual are very much united, and mm-hmm. the physical means something. Right, and you see that you live that out in ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's one way of you living out the grand cosmic story. Exactly. And little pieces, even as your whole life is living out the grand cosmic story. Right. Um, With wine and bread, mm-hmm. and you know things that you can taste and exactly. touch, and water, and mm-hmm. and it's yeah. fantastic. It's not about depriving the body or you know, getting past the physical or moving through the fake world. It is, it is infusing the physical and manifesting the world with all of this meaning, mm-hmm. which is just awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> and, and I think that's one reason that I really appreciate um, the liturgy and bringing that in, um, the, the sort of ritual. And, and I feel like it brings back this notion of more all people sort of acting out poetry it's just you saying things, but it is all the people always participating. It's right. not just, you know, one person sort of leaving this whole thing, but it's everyone coming together, acting out this ritual of, you know, saying peace be to you and, and repeating the prayers and all of these different things, um, which I think is cool. And it, it ties into, he talks about how people are converted, not by philosophy, but by a calendar <laughs> right. of like festivities and this, and really they're converted by the story that ritual is conveying. Moving on to chapter seven, this is Omar and the Sacred Vine. And this chapter is really about the notion of happiness. If I I was going to try to put it into one word, which is always a dangerous thing to do, but uh, I'll take the risk. And Chesterton sort of starts out his discussion by talking about drinking, um, which is great fun. And so he... He presents these two different ways that you could approach drinking, um, drinking wine or drinking whatever. Of <laughs> Malt cocoa for those teetotalers <laughs> of you out there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, he, he talks about if you're drinking it because you are happy or you're drinking it to try to make yourself happy or, or try to maybe cure your unhappiness. And so he's setting up this dichotomy of saying the irrational irrational drinking is the better sort of drinking and that is the drinking that you do because you are happy and Mm -hmm. you realize because you're doing it out of pleasure he's saying that no sane man tries to have pleasure every moment of every day and so there's going to be a limit to that pleasure you're going to enjoy it but you're not going to overindulge so basically it's the depressed man who becomes an alcoholic right because that drinks out of joy or spending time with a friend or whatever exactly because you're treating it he says as a medicine and that is the rational approach so i feel like a lot of times he sort of uses the word rational to almost mean utilitarian like you're drinking for medicine and that's more practical right but that is effects not mm -hmm. because of a place that you're coming that you're already your posture right yeah you're trying to use it to achieve something that Mm -hmm. it will never bring you right versus if you're already in that spot of happiness or joy and then you just sort of it's one of the effects of that then you're treating it rightly and uh, and you're going to enjoy it (laughs) and it's not going to be harmful is it worth just uh giving a very uh quick explanation for what omar and the sacred vine that's the title of the chapter (laughs) so it's an epic poem by e fitzgerald which was very popular at the time um about this this man omar who basically drinks out of a sort of nihilistic belief that he's Mm -hmm. numbing himself to the meaninglessness of his life so that is that is kind of the heresy that he's addressing right right this heresy Mm -hmm. if you haven't read it which i certainly have not not read it either we're getting a nice book list going from, from reading this book, I think. Um, so that's sort of the introduction, but what we really wanted to focus most of our time on this chapter is 
sort of this contrast that he presents between true happiness and a, um, so like an, an eternal view of happiness, if you will, versus a carpe diem view. Do you want to explain that or should I jump into it? I can give a, take a whack at it. So <laughs> carpe diem is, I think this is a really prevalent mentality now of sort of a YOLO mm -hmm. mentality of sort of live for the moment because yeah, tomorrow you die. Not as popular of a term now. <laughs> okay, so like 10 years ago, there was this thing called YOLO. Um, there must be some abbreviation for it now that the youngsters use. <laughs> Not that I know of. I mean, people my age are familiar with the term YOLO, but... Are they just gone back to carpe diem now? Maybe, honestly, <laughs> They're more, they're more sophisticated, the young people these days. <laughs> but the idea being basically eat, drink, because tomorrow you die. So mm -hmm. um, it is, again, it's that nihilistic uh, live for the moment, which I think is very popular. Just, you know, just, just be in the moment, live for the moment. Um sees the day i guess some people see it as sort of hedonistic living because there's ultimately no meaning so you may as well squeeze that lemon dry <laughs> while you can <laughs> yes and um and i think people almost they paint the fact that life is finite as a good thing as if the reason that we can enjoy things and be happy is because it's temporary which on the surface sounds sophisticated it sounds it's it, it has a ring of truth to it because you think mm -hmm. oh yeah well we, you can't enjoy things if you go on enjoying them forever if i celebrate my birthday every day it's not special anymore yeah, <laughs> we all, right we all hear that as children from our parents but there's a really um profound missing of the truth there that chesterton is teasing out which i think you should <laughs> you should tease out for us now sophie so Chesterton says that happy moments, which we've all experienced a happy moment. I mean, probably the better term is even a, a joyful moment, mm -hmm. um, a moment where time seems to stand still. He says that those moments are happy because they are filled with eternity. And, and he talks about Dante too. And he says that the true great joy is the joy that is fixed on an immortal rose, something that does not um corrupt over time something that that lasts forever and so um he he's arguing against this notion that things are joyful because they seem momentary and rather what he's saying is that things are joyful because in that moment you are sort of touching the eternal mm, and yeah. it is as if time doesn't exist those moments are so special because in those moments you catch a glimpse of what life should be what life will be one day right and you can't because we're finite beings right now you know we can't grasp hold of that and so man what he says is not that man can enjoy you know not that man enjoys finite things but that man can enjoy only immortal things but he can love them for and enjoy them only for a moment that's that's the thing is that it's you're loving the eternal thing but you can only love it for a moment right now so if you're a lewis reader as we are i'm sure many of your listeners are then you'll recognize that concept as lewis's concept of joy where you just kind of get this glimpse or this one taste of this delicious eternal thing that stirs a longing within you and that longing mm -hmm. is itself joy but it's mm -hmm. not fulfilled joy yet it's this sense mm -hmm. of i'm longing for for eternity um though lewis didn't know that originally <laughs> right right yeah and it's and it is because it's something eternal it's because it's that little foretaste that it is delicious and wonderful mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's just oh it's just a glimpse into what life will be right and he, he talks about he says that you know nothing at all can be enjoyed if we have the wrong attitude towards happiness um that, that's just sort of one of the points that he makes and i think you can sort of take that thought and we, if you think about your eschatology, because your eschatology is what's going to reshape how you understand happiness and how you understand all of these happy moments. So if you have an eschatology that ends in just death, how can you, you can't ever truly mm -hmm. enjoy anything because you know it's going to end. 
there, there's right. no sense of that eternal lasting goodness versus if you have an eschatology that says that life goes on in a bodily resurrection with all of like real solid people food drink relationship work all of these things Hallelujah. <laughs> when that is your hope that's where you're placing your hope then everything becomes infused i think with happiness yeah, absolutely. All of these moments because you know that when you're hanging out with your friends and you're having a wonderful time, you know that things like that will always be repeated. They're yeah. not going to like exist. You're not going to be perpetually with friends in this <laughs> circle of laughter, but it will be repeated time and time again forever. Right. right. It's touching on an eternal and therefore it has mm -hmm. an eternal meaning. It's not just I'm subscribing a meaning to this, but it has an objective meaning that you're right. tapping into. Um and just to, to give a quote to what you're saying, because it's a fantastic one. So Chesterton says, if we're to be truly gay, happy, we must believe that there is some eternal gaiety in the nature of things. Mm -hmm. And then he says, we must believe that we dance to the same tune the stars dance to. It's just munch on that quote for a minute. <laughs> it's so Chestertonian. It's beautiful. He, just, he captures it. Just like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this ties in really well with the, the previous chapter about ritual um, mm -hmm. because it is it is that kind of touching that live wire again. Mm -hmm. It's through this sort of simple little, little beauties and little savory things that we enjoy in life that occasionally we touch on that eternal meaning. And that is what gives them their beauty and their depth and their meaning to us. And it's not something that we can manufacture. It's something that we tap into. Mm-hmm. And if we're thinking too of like this eschatology of, of redemption and completion, that means that our world is moving towards something. Right. And so you sort of, I think when you see it that way, you recognize the incompleteness now, knowing you're moving towards completeness. Versus if you think that the world is always going to be as it is, I don't know, like I, that. Or spiral into or sp complete get chaos worse. and burn. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or, or go that direction. Um, it kind of sucks the meaning out of those moments and so right, sucks the right. joy out of those moments and then of course you want to drown your sorrows with wine <laughs> that's not real enjoyment that's not real happiness exactly exactly it's there's something so powerful about recognizing the incompleteness of the world but knowing that incompleteness is moving towards yeah completeness absolutely which is just and that we get so cool. we get little taste we get little sneak peeks now and we yes. don't have to wait till the final curtain to see it all, that we can already have those glimpses. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think what you were saying earlier, I think when we were talking about the previous chapter of Kronos versus Kairos, of you, we're sort of moving in this Kronos linear time, but Kairos you can think of as, um, one, one way of thinking of it is like right moments, significant moments, um, all these sorts of things, or just like this bigger concept of time, of, of like God's time. Right. And... Um, it, it's like those moments where Kairos invades Kronos. Exactly. Um, and so you, you just get a glimpse of this whole new way of time existing. Yeah. Um, Which is a beautiful thought because I was listening to a, a theologian called N.T. Wright. <laughs> of surprise, course. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about um, heaven again, like you were saying earlier, not as this destination or this far off place or this one day place. But when Peter talks about, you know, um, he talks about how these treasures are kept in heaven for you that God it's not like oh down the road you'll get there and you'll get all these treasures but God has has all of this bounty for you in this moment in his in his time in Kairos and mm -hmm. so when we touch on it it is something that is real and that is present now and that he is bringing as you said he's merging back into our world he's he is bringing back together this world and his world, Kronos and Kairos, are coming back together in this beautiful marriage. So it's just this thought of, it's not just imagining the future, it's literally touching what is. Right. What is and what is also not yet. Yes. Which, oh, that's, that's good. That's really cool. Um, I, <laughs> just for fun, um, just to compare this, uh, so a friend of mine and myself, we tuned into a Unitarian Universalist service this past Sunday, just for kicks and giggles um, for ourselves. Um, you sneaky little spies. <laughs> yes, yes. We didn't get to go in person, alas. It was just a Zoom 
so less exciting. But it was really interesting. I've never, I mean, everybody hears about Unitarian Universalists, but I'd never watched a service or, you know, looked that much into what they say and, and all of that. And what we thought was just the, out of all the craziness of the whole thing, when they were singing their hymns, some of them, I think they were completely like newly written. Some, they took more traditional hymns and changed the words. Um, one of them, I think they straight up just sang a hymn, but it was meaningless <laughs> at that point. But anyways, one of the themes that we consistently felt came from it was that they were like, well, we're going somewhere and we're excited that we're going somewhere. But there was no notion of where they're going. I think they one line of one of them was like, heaven knows where we're going. You know, of like the phrase heaven knows as if well, that's nobody ironic. knows. Yeah, it is ironic. <laughs> but they're like, heaven knows where we're going, but we feel it in our hearts. We know it in our hearts. Mm. And it's like, you don't, you have no notion where, they're like, they're just singing this empty, There's meaningless. No and, and they talked about, oh, oh goodness, about going through suffering. And they're like, but we'll just carry on. Like, we'll just keep walking through it. It's even just... though we know that like the song was literally like, we know suffering will keep coming, but we're just going to pick up and carry on. And it was just well, like the definition of empty hope. It was, yes, it was so hopeless because their eschatology is so meaningless because yeah. they're trying to cater to everybody. And you can't, you like Chesterton says, you've got to draw the line. Right. Her- heresy is a good thing if, you, if it means that it's pointing to a truth that you can come back with. Right. Whereas they're just trying to please everybody. And by yeah. trying to please everybody, they're just Nobody's saying nothing. Nobody's got anything they're, to they're hold on to. They're just meaningless. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. so looking at this difference of there's all these ways that people are trying to find happiness, whether it's through a carpe diem, hedonistic mindset, mm-hmm. or whether it's through meaningless unitarian universalist let's just keep suffering together (laughs) yeah it's like it's very self-help you know of like if i just loved myself they literally played a video of how to be a friend to yourself Mm. which was just mind-blowing to me of like friendship involves two people that's Mm. just my thoughts on that but whatever lying to yourself is not the place to start (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's this notion of like if you could just somehow find happiness within yourself but you can't. The fact right. is that happiness, joy, rest, and the transcendent and the eternal. Neither of which we are. Exactly. <laughs> on our own. Exactly. Again, it's not something we manufacture. And many, many a person has died blue in the face trying. Exactly. You, you can only do it when you look upon the face of God. Absolutely. Yeah. That's home. <laughs> <laughs> so, on top of all of that, we thought it'd be lovely to end this chapter with reading a chunk from the last page of the chapter, which Mez is going to do for us as soon as she gets there. So just a little preface preface (laughs) about this this beautiful finale. It's basically Chesterton summing up the distinction between Omar's view, this chap in the poem, um, who is drinking himself silly out of hopelessness so his kind of invitation to come drink versus christ's invitation so starting with with omar omar says drink he says for you know not whence you come nor why drink for you know not when you go nor where drink because the stars are cruel and the world as idle as a humming top drink because there is nothing worth trusting nothing worth fighting for Drink because all things are lapsed in a base equality and an evil peace. And then this is back to Chesterton. <laughs> so he stands offering us the cup, offering us the cup in his hand. And at the high altar of Christianity stands another figure, in whose hand also is the cup of the vine. Drink, he says, for the whole world is as red as this wine, with the crimson of the love and wrath of God. Drink, for the trumpets are blowing for battle, and this is the stirrup cup. Drink, for this is my blood of the New Testament that is shed for you. Drink, for I know of whence you come and why. Drink, for I know of when you go and where. All right, moving on to chapter eight, the mildness of the yellow press. So Chesterton is talking about the newspapers at the time trying to be sensational, but really being too mild um, is sort of his point. And this one was hard to pull out of a central theme. I kind of said life or uh, 
what was the other word I said? I already forgot. Vivacity? Vivacity or lifeblood. Like just, mm. you know, I don't know. You just think of the blood like coursing through someone's veins. and Real sensation. Y- yeah, like something powerful and meaningful and full of life. You know, that's all I right. can think of. So, but these are honestly going to be kind of scattered thoughts because this chapter felt a bit more scattered in a sense. Um, I think one of the big things well so he talks a lot about common sense and he ends up saying because common sense is the opposite of true life Mm. and he ends up saying that um, common sense itself is really nonsensical so he, he just he sort of talks about this someone's talking about they wrote a little um snippet on an american presidential election right yes and the snippet said a little sound common sense often goes further with an audience of American working men than much high-flown argument. A speaker who, as he brought forward his points, hammered nails into a board, won hundreds of votes for his side at the last presidential election. <laughs> and so Chesterton is just like, well, that's ridiculous. You know, like he won votes by hammering nails into a board. Right. How right. is that common sense? And I love that from that he drew the analogy from the literal hammering of nails, <laughs> of nails. Uh-huh. to this idea of, of the press of his day. And mm-hmm. one could argue about a lot of the press of our day that the hammering of nails is all about making a noise. Or mm-hmm. As he says, it's a no- it's, it's noise and not substance that matters right. to the new journalism. Right, right. Because he says they when people these sorts of people talk about he's like the hustlers the bustlers the empire builders strong silent men when they say common sense what they really mean is knocking with deafening noise and dramatic effect meaningless bits of iron into a useless bit of wood like it's just <laughs> nonsensical and pointlessness right. just to try to persuade you that they're doing something significant but mm-hmm. it is utterly meaningless exactly whereas you need this high the high flown argument like you need real substance and real argument to actually persuade people yeah. um, and to find anything, to have life, to have a meaningful newspaper to read. Right. Like All of it needs real substance, not this um, nonsensical common sense. Right. And I will say, I mean, he's, of course, he's talking about turn of the century, but the Daily Mail and the Daily Express are still two papers that are handed out when you enter the tube in London. And mm-hmm. so people grab these either in the morning, commute to work, or on the way home. And just as he says that, you know, these sensational papers meant to rile you and excite you are actually just serving a sort of sleepy audience. Or as he says, you know, half drunk people on the tube mm-hmm. who just want a little numbness. That's still the case today. You know, all of these kind of sensational stories, people know that they're that they're a joke or that they're a farce and they just read them for sort of half of a laugh you know and then toss them on the seat as they get off the train it's still very much the case so our day is not so far after all (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah yeah and um i don't even know if it's really to say along the same lines but he also talks about what they're what different people are doing is accommodating to a trend And he talks Mm -hmm. about that sort of being a big thing. But really, if you're accommodating to a trend, he's like, people won't choose to accommodate to anything. Right. They're just sort of following all these different things. But to accommodate to something means you you choose one thing. You can't have it all. Yeah. And you can't constantly be wishy-washy. So you're not, you're just not picking anything. And it's just. And what's behind that? He points to fear. Mm -hmm. He says that at its worst um this these trend followers it consists of many millions of frightened creatures all accommodating themselves to a trend that is not there it's this kind of fomo fear of i'm not on the bandwagon i'm behind Mm -hmm. the times i'm not following the trends and so they jump onto these things that actually aren't true trends at all that are substanceless right just in order not to be left out sad place to be sounds a little childish doesn't it but hey there's childishness that needs rooting out in right. all of us. And now this is such a more prevalent thing because new trends happen every single day yeah. with uh, didn't have social the media, social especially media. with, I think, TikTok. You know, people Oof. will literally be like, I'm posting this video because this song is trending or, you know, this style of video. And you is see trending. that and you think, oh, well, if they've said it's trending, it must be trending. And then everybody jumps trend. on it because you got to get more followers. And maybe this is your one shot at getting famous is Oof. if you do this trend well. Oh gosh. And none of it is, it's all fake. 
Yeah, it's kind of creating to the market mm-hmm. when the market is constantly shifting under your feet. Right. And then you just miss the boat every time. It's, so it's again, a means to an end rather than actually doing something out of a meaningful place. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, though, perhaps my favorite thing that he talks about in this chapter is he's always coming back to these paradoxes. And he says there's this one paradox of people who worship violence, oh, worship yeah. all these different things. They will always necessarily end in timidity. Hmm what he offers in contrast which is still a paradox he says mm-hmm. that it is the hope of the hopeless yeah. that is real strength rather than those that pretend i guess security and self or who seek a thrill that actually um as he says they that ends in timidity but yeah the hope of the hopeless it is one of those Chestertonian things where he, he throws out these paradoxes that you just have to sort of sit with them yeah. <laughs> for a little while and then yeah. you think, oh gosh, it's dawning on me, but he's right. Right. Well, and I think the hope of the hopeless, that one to me makes more sense because he's sort of saying hope is only a virtue when all situations are hopeless. Right. Because if things look hopeful, then you don't need to hope. It's not a virtue. It's not anything special or extraordinary. Mm. But then when everything is hopeless... And yet you choose to hope. You're hoping when it's most unreasonable to do so. Mm. But that's the paradox of that's when the moment that hope is is needed. And when you hope in it the most hopeless, that's when things actually happen. Right. It's like, I mean, it's like Frodo and Sam. You know, if, you, if you're in the depths of mortal when it's most hopeless, but you choose to hope nevertheless, that's when you have the courage to suddenly do something incredible. And that's like the whole root of the paradox is the humble are the most courageous. Right. Not um, those who have sort of um, given themselves a persona of success. Right. Which all ends up crumbling. And I love that he says like hope, like all Christian virtues, is unreasonable and indispensable. Okay, then we'll just jump on to chapter nine. Uh, which is the moods of George Moore. And really what Chesterton focuses on this is this whole theme of pride. And there's so many, I just don't even like, I don't even know where to begin with this one. Um, obviously pride, maybe I'll just begin with my favorite part. Um, so if, if you're focused, he's, he's critiquing George Moore, who well, I want to say he started out writing, he wrote one memoir or autobiographical something and then was like, this is great, so I'm going to keep doing it and just... Yeah. All of his writing, he was the epicenter of everything, and apparently mm-hmm. was very celebrated in his day because, hey, if you toot your own horn, again, going back to the last chapter, people will think, there's a trend here, I need to toot his <laughs> horn too, he must be worth tooting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so he's the, the sort of epitome of pride, and Chesterton mm-hmm. explains how that is quite the opposite of a virtue. And one of my favorite ways that he approaches this is he says, if... If you're looking out onto the world, but you're thinking only about yourself, you're, you're so self-focused, maybe like focus on what other people might think of you, focus on what you think of yourself, focused on how to be successful, all these different things, you end up trying to be many-sided because for some reason we seem to think, you know, that that's what a successful person is. Right. So I'm this an expert in all things. Exactly. <laughs> this proud person is trying to meet all of these things and ends up losing their real personality. Mm. in the course of it and so by trying to focus on and hold on to themselves and keep themselves in the center they end up completely losing themselves which is another paradox yeah um which is such fun such (laughs) fun what can i say (laughs) and so then he contrasts that with the person who chooses to think only about the universe you think only about the things external to yourself you stop focusing so much on yourself and all of a sudden, you're thinking about everything in your own unique, individual way. And then you, you have this whole wondrous experience yeah. where you see, he says, like, you see a sun that no other man has seen. Because you're focusing on the outward side and not on yourself. You see, you're wondering at something without wondering. self-consciousness. And it becomes... It becomes some a unique experience, right? Because it's you are a unique, genuinely, genuinely, <laughs> it's authentically authentic. <laughs> because you are a unique person, right? 
You don't have to try to be a unique person. That part right. is given to you. You just have to get your nose when out of you, your navel. Exactly. When you try, it fails, which makes me think of C.S. Lewis's quote about some um, writing. And he says, you know, if you try, instead, what was it? Oh, goodness. Oh, he's saying, if you just try to tell the truth, instead of caring mm-hmm. about original, being original, then nine times out of ten, you'll end up being original without ever having noticed it. And so I, I just... I see that in books like, you know, um, Harry Potter. Like, think of Harry Potter. People will make all the comparisons between Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And, oh, there's this old man with white beard. It's all these <laughs> superficial similarities. Right. But the thing is that I think Rowling, like Tolkien, like Lewis, like all those other people, just cared about telling the truth. Right. Without wondering, like, it didn't matter how many times the truth has been told before. The fact is that they tried to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And then things become original on their own. Right. Whereas all these other people... They're like, let me come up with a new dystopian world. <laughs> you know, they're before like, you know me... it, you think I've, I've read this before. I've seen exactly. this before. That, I mean, that's how you feel, even though uh, Hunger Games may be different from Maze Runner, which may be different, you know, superficially from, what's the other one? Divergent. But in the end, they all kind of just start feeling and sounding the same because their focus was on being different instead exactly. of just telling the truth. Right. And I feel like this speaks so much to the artists among us because there is such a pressure to be original, to be fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, that is that becomes an act of self-conscious work. And you can't create mm-hmm. when you're riddled with the anxiety of, you know, being self-consciously original. It, it's, well, I'm just going to say what Chesterton says. <laughs> but it's the destroyer of creativity. Right. Um, ultimately, pride is the destroyer of creativity. It says pride is a weakness in the character. And I would also say in the, creative mm-hmm. character it dries up laughter it dries up wonder it drives up chivalry and energy so i really feel like this boils down to what christ teaches us time and time again that you must become like the little child mm-hmm. who is not interested in how people are perceiving him because he's so fascinated with the world around him right he's so full of wonder and mirth and and interest and in other things that you know I love watching children. You know how they'll just do like the most ridiculous things in public. They'll just sort of spaz <laughs> out. And, and you think, wouldn't it be great to just have that freedom of mm-hmm. freedom from self-consciousness and just be so enjoying the day that you just start dancing or doing a silly walk in the middle <laughs> of public. But that is really, what I feel like, what he's getting at, which is the, the antithesis of, of pride, of George Moore's sort of... Um, trying to reframe the world around himself and to make himself this interesting, moody, broody character. Just get get out. <laughs> get, be free. And then comes the freedom of laughter, the freedom of wonder, the freedom of chivalry and energy that we long for, and creativity. And I think, too, that pride, it is not always just a thinking highly of yourself. But, but I think in this way, it's also a self-absorption, even if that means you're just sort of ruminating on your faults or ruminating on this or that. Like, I, it's just too much of an inward focus. Mm. Not that we, we should be self-reflective, you know, but like, I, I see, I feel like in many ways, it's more common now for people to be focused so much on themselves of how, but, but they're not necessarily focused on themselves in a positive way but i I don't think the answer is to think more about yourself positively it's just think about yourself less exactly and and either way you're destroying laughter and you're destroying wonder if you're thinking about yourself positively or negatively yeah definitely you're 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 just drying it up definitely what yeah what we're we're called to do is not to beat up on ourselves to try to combat pride by being somehow you know self-deprecating because as you say that is still self-absorption it's still Mm -hmm. just as unhealthy um, it's to get out of ourselves, I guess, the art of self-forgetfulness. 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 Stop trying to be a friend to yourself and be a friend to others. That's Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there's so many other people to be friends with, just yourself. There's, just so, there's so many other things to delight in, and being absorbed in yourself is always harmful. I mean, I feel like that's one of the easy pitfalls of living alone is mm. what it's easier to be like 
to get stuck in your head ruminating about yourself. Right. And right. that just that destroys everything. Yeah. Whereas a great remedy when you're is to get focused out outside of yourself. Focused on especially if you're focused on what is eternal and transcendent. Right. Ultimately God. Right. Right. <laughs> that puts everything right. And right. Suddenly, so yourself included. And it's really refreshing because let's face it, we're all human and so we all struggle with pride and we've all right. done a little navel gazing and exactly. got <laughs> and probably on a regular basis are a little too interested in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful refreshment that comes when you finally, you know, maybe Maybe some of you who have been cooped up during COVID can relate to this particularly. When you finally get out and you see people or you go and you serve someone, you make a meal for someone or you just get together and you forget to think about yourself constantly, it's so refreshing and reorienting Mm -hmm. to get, it's a prison to be constantly absorbed with cells. (laughs) Yes. That's probably why so many people are super depressed. (laughs) Yes. I I would think so. Yeah. Because I think our world now lends itself to to that kind of self-absorption and praises it um but it is it is destructive it's totally destructive and totally shriveling up or drying up as chesterson says of of all that is enjoyable it is and you make also everything weaker as we're saying like you you make plain arguments weaker when you say i think this according (laughs) to me right but she says George Moore frames everything. Everything with the eye. This is how I perceive mm-hmm. the day. It's not, it was a beautiful day, but I perceive that the weather was Right, fine which today. people immediately check out. I mean, it's kind of a basic rule of writing essays is you, you don't do that. Right, <laughs> You exactly. just you state the fact because on its own, it's strong yeah. and you're just weakening right. it. Allow um, somebody else to step in and experience that and not have to depend on, on you. On you. Right. It's vicar. just, it, again, a paradox that when you're so focused on yourself, you end up making what you say weaker. Exactly. And if you would just focus on what you're saying, right. it'll be stronger and stand on its own. Especially if it's true. Especially if it's true. Yeah, if it's <laughs> false, it'll just fall flat anyways. Which comes back to Chesterton's theme of, you know, having, having a philosophy and having true philosophy and being connected to what is true and eternal is the best remedy for all of these heresies. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs>